Hi, this is Dave Spray, and I just recorded a uh, uh, another edition of the IC Disc Show. Uh, this is one of the first editions we've done in some time because we've been on hiatus uh, after COVID-19 started. But my guest today was Sheila Enriquez, the managing partner of the uh, CPA firm Briggs & Veselka here in Houston. And uh, this was a really amazing interview with really an amazing human being. Uh, Sheila's the first guest I've had who was not born in this country. And she just epitomizes really uh, the American dream and the opportunities that are available in this country that some of us who uh, are native born can, can forget. I, I certainly uh, have to be careful to not take uh, the opportunities this company offer, country offers uh, for granted. Uh, but it's a wide-ranging interview talking about the accounting profession, her background, her story. Uh, just her personal story is really just uh, heartwarming. And uh, I hope you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. David? Hi, Sheila. Hi, Good how morning. are you? Good morning. So first of all, thank you for uh, being a guest on the IC Disc Show. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for, for letting me be on. So you, um, you're a unique guest. We've had, we've had uh, the same guest on twice, uh, but we've never had a guest, two guests from the same firm on, on two different episodes. So, uh, uh, but here, let me go ahead and get the background and then I'll explain why you're the second one. So my guest today is Sheila Enriquez, the managing partner of the Texas-based CPA firm of Briggs & Veselka, um, which is a Houston-based uh, CPA firm. And uh, in the interest of full disclosure, I was an employee of the firm uh, for several years, about 15 years ago. So, um, so why don't we start by just telling me about Briggs and Veselka, the history of it, and uh, how long you've been there, and your role at the firm. Oh, absolutely! I'd love. I would love to um, have that opportunity. So, Briggs and Veselka is the largest independent CPA firm in Houston. We currently have a little bit over 320 people now, but we started in 1973 with three people, and one of the co co-founding partners is Johnny Veselka, who is the main partner. Started out historically as a tax firm, and then grew to be, uh, you know, the largest independent firm providing full-service accounting services, including tax audit and financial consulting, and even technology consulting now, in, in terms of offerings to our clients. So, um, as a firm, really, we've evolved primarily because um, our more senior partners that started the firm, Johnny Veselka, John Fladowitz, who's one of the ones that I know you've interviewed previously, Steve Awal, Charlie Weller, Gary Trotka, um, several others, you know, that have started the firm and um, built it. Their, their vision was really to create a legacy firm that is um, committed to the community and committed to Texas specifically. So um, in that process, they've really done a great job over the years of creating a pipeline of leadership, you know, and identifying services that enhance our relationship with our clients, providing value. And um, I personally started with the firm in 2007. So I've been with the firm now a little bit over 13 years, started as a manager in the audit group and um, in that you know, through through my joining the firm, I really was able to take advantage of the opportunities that the senior partners at the time were offering up and coming uh, managers and leaders within the firm. Uh, very fortunate to have found a firm when I did because we were in a, at a transition point. That was a time when Johnny Visalco was starting to look to transition his role as managing partner. Um, to John Fladowitz, who eventually took over, I believe, in 2009. And um, I remember in 07, when I first started, there might have been 80, 90 people. Um, so it's a pretty incredible growth since we started, um, tripled really in number. Um, over the course of John's leadership, eight years total, 
because I actually just celebrated my second year anniversary as managing partner yesterday. So, uh, oh, yeah. congratulations. It went by really quick. Thank you. Sure. It really went by super fast. But John, in his eight years of, um, you know, of leadership has tripled the size of the firm, both revenue wise as well as people wise. And so he's really given me a huge gift, you know, in terms of, in transitioning from from him as managing partner to me taking over, it sets us up very nicely in in putting forth a vision for what the next ten years would look like. And um, part of that then is our goal to be, you know, one of the largest independent firms in Texas, not just Houston. So we're the third largest currently. And I think the notion of independence is very important to us because it really allows us to preserve our culture that is very much a client-centric type of a culture, but very people-focused, you know, so we start with our people first and giving them the right opportunities, you know, um, leadership development, and, and also giving them paths that are more in line with their interests and that marry mm-hmm. within the needs of the firm, too. So I, I am sort of that poster child, I would say, of that individual that came to the firm as an audit manager and evolved to become a partner that leads even our litigation support practice that I am very proud to have helped build within the firm. And it's one of our fastest growing areas now within the firm. It's a passion of mine. You know, it marries my legal training. I'm an attorney as well. So my legal training with the audit background. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. um, it's a great example, you know, of somebody that was looking for a path that was unique to me. And I I really just love my experience overall because that's, that type of an opportunity is not unique to me. There are many, many mm-hmm. people in the firm, as you know, David, because you know our firm quite well, that have sort of um, found their own paths and created their own niches. And um, it's very rewarding. And it's, it's sort of like being an entrepreneur within mm-hmm. the support structure, you know, of a firm like Briggs & Visalka. So that that's yeah. our firm, you know. Um, I, I, I don't know if that gives you, your, it your does. listeners, you know, a good a good flavor. Of, yeah, it does. And we'll, yeah, and we'll delve into that. But I'm glad you brought up, you know, the, uh, that you highlighted the opportunities of, uh, you know, that the firm offers because, you know, not only have you only been at the firm 13 years, that I'm, I'm, I know that you're not a native Houstonian. And I think you moved to Houston just 13 years ago as well, correct? That's right. A little bit over, uh, well, I actually, July 19, 2006, so 14 years, going on okay. 14 years. Yeah. Okay. But, yeah. So, I, and the reason I want to accentuate that, and then, um, and then I, I know that you'd moved from, from New York, uh, but what I don't recall is whether you were born in the U.S. or not. Oh, okay. So, so I actually wasn't. I, I grew up in the Philippines, so I, yep, I grew up in the Philippines, lived. Yeah, I lived there, um, graduated high school there, and, and the reason why I actually had an opportunity to come to the United States was through a scholarship. So I was fortunate to be picked as one of 10 students that um, received a full full scholarship, all expenses paid, through a very generous Japanese sponsor who actually um, paid for the 10 students, including myself, to study in an American college. It's, oh, wow. Um, state- yeah, it's State University of New York Theater School in Lockshell Drake, New York, the so SUNY Sullivan County Community College. So I ended up taking that opportunity, which um, completely changed my trajectory because I was supposed to be a doctor. <laughs> I was graduating from high school, already accepted at the University of the Philippines in the pretty much medical program. And I decided to take the opportunity for this great adventure. It was a two-year program a year and a half in Toyama, Japan, where the SUNY SCCC campus was located. And I actually ended up living with my sponsor. There were two girls and eight boys. My husband was one of the eight as well. Um, oh, and wow. So there, yeah. So there were two of us that lived with a sponsor family. They had two daughters as well. So it was a wonderful experience. We got immersed completely in the culture, whereas the, the eight boys had their own apartment. So okay. uh, it was a wonderful experience, got to travel in Japan, got to um, spend a great, great time, you know, um, learning the culture, still one of our favorite um, places. And we were supposed to go actually this year, June 10th, and 
go back and, and visit and take our kids. But, you know, with the coronavirus, we, we had to cancel it. But then the last six months is at the New York campus okay. in upstate New York. So, um, but then the, the story continues because what ended up happening is I, we actually both ended up getting a, a scholarship to attend Mercy College, which is located in Dobbs Ferry, New York, Westchester County. Okay. So, um, so we transferred into that program. I ended up taking uh, management, undergraduate in management, and my husband Jose pursued accounting. But as a, as I was about to graduate with the undergraduate program, my last semester, I had three, I had three credits left for electives, and I ended up talking to the MBA, the dean of the graduate program of Long Island University, that happened to actually have a campus within Mercy okay. College as well. And I think it was a serendipity really, but the, the Dean Wayne Shafari ended up offering me a graduate assistantship to actually pursue my MBA, you know, um, for free, you know, in, in exchange for working 20 hours as his, you know, as his assistant because he oh, chose wow. not to have a secretary. Yeah. So he ends up giving students, you know, opportunity, uh, you know, high performing students opportunity to, attend the, the program for free while working for him rather than him hiring a secretary. So there were several of us that were in that um, pool. Oh, what a great and strategy. So, but, you know, he changed my whole life because in that process, I was graduating with a management degree and he pretty much sold me on the idea of pursuing my CPA license because okay. he developed this four plus one program. He called it CPA MBA four plus one program, I can still see the brochure in my head. But it was a yeah. pilot program that he was doing really ahead of the time because that's a pretty common program now, P you know, PP, mm -hmm. you know, the professional um, accounting program. Yeah. And so I took, I took the opportunities. I ended up deferring my graduation and started taking graduate classes and undergraduate classes, mostly accounting undergraduate, <laughs> to, you know, to, to, to come mm -hmm. up with my... Um, undergraduate degree in public accounting so I can take the CPA exam and the rest is history because I ended up passing the exam when I first took it and it opened up a lot of doors for us to be able for me to be able to actually stay in the U.S. under a working visa and then a, you know my employer in Rhode Island sponsored me for my green card so it's a bit of a oh, long okay. story but it, it, no, I think it's, I it's it. really a story of serendipity <laughs> and, and well, people opening doors for me. So that's been the story of my life. Sure. Well, and I think you're being a bit, a bit too modest. It is a story of, of serendipity, but it's also, I think, a story of seizing opportunity. And uh, yes, so obviously you made the most of it. And, uh, uh, and then, so I believe then the story then progresses from, uh, so you were living in Rhode Island. Is that Yes, yeah, so we right, so, so we I lived in New York for about six years, five or six years. So after finishing my undergraduate, um, Wayne to introduce me to my first employer, uh, Brenner McDonough and Tortolani, which was an outsourced accounting C CFO controller okay. firm focused on nonprofits. So um, so really, it starts with them in terms of my experience in financial consulting. Um, but then one of the partners at McDonough was retiring and he happened to be living in Rhode Island. So the, the firm itself, which is still in existence, they're focused on a niche market. It's Catholic religious, basically. Okay. And so um, they have offices all over the country. So New York was their main office, still is. And then they have an office in Rhode Island, Maryland, really all over the country. So there was an opportunity okay. to move to Rhode Island in 1998. And because neither my husband nor I have roots in New York, we were sort of the, we were pretty adventurous, right? We were, why not? Let's mm -hmm. start over because Westchester County was so expensive. If you all aren't aware sure. of it, New York, yeah. yeah, New York is expensive, but Westchester is, is really up there, you know, in terms of. Yeah. It's one of the affluent, the affluent suburbs, right? Basically. Exactly. I mean, that's where mm -hmm. Scarsdale is and, you know, all these, um, pretty, you know, pretty affluent, like you said, people that work in the city, you know, they, right. they live there. <clears throat> but ultimately, we made the decision in 98 to start over, not start over, but, you know, relocate to Rhode Island. Yeah. And then, yeah, so we ended up living there for actually eight years in Rhode Island. And in that process, I made a decision um, shortly after we moved there 
to, to work for a CPA firm because I needed 500 audit hours to get my license. So even though I passed the exam in New York, I didn't okay. have the experience, right? Because um, as a financial consultant, we weren't a CPA firm, right? So right, right. So that you experience, get hours. exactly, exactly. So mm-hmm. I needed a year experience and 500 audit hours. And the plan really originally is, um, to, to your point about seizing opportunities, the plan really for me was to just get the hours. And then, you know, and then potentially go back to the, my other firm because it was so much more in a senior position than starting at a CPA firm where I started as a staff. So at that point, I already had a couple of years of experience. I literally mm-hmm. started as a staff accountant and they did every, you know, you go in there, it's a smaller firm, it's Farrow Johnson and you're Zillow. So you, I ended up doing everything. So I would do the audit and then I would do the tax. And that would be at okay. the corporate or partnership level. And then I would do the kids you know, or, or the parents and then the kids. I got so much exposure sure. to many um, aspects of the business because it's a smaller firm. And, and mm-hmm. my experience or lack thereof didn't stop my progression within the firm, which was great. So I was a staff for three months. They promoted me immediately to senior. You know, so it was it was one of those. Um, just a perfect place for me at that time. You know, I stayed mm-hmm. there for eight years and, you know, had my first baby, you know, while working for them, started law school in the evenings while working for them. And they were very, very supportive, you know, throughout the whole process. So um ended up working for them through 2006, uh, you know, um, and, and the reason why I left was primarily because my husband and I, Jose, decided to um start over in in Houston. (laughs) I know. I love this. I love this. I love this story because as I understand it, you know, because you all both came from the Philippines, you didn't have, you know, quote unquote family in the U S but you basically decided to make your own family, if you will, uh, you know, by by developing close friendships. So, so please uh, continue with then how that brought you to Houston. So, so I, I mentioned earlier that there was there, there were ten students that um, you know were part of that scholarship program, and one of them is really my husband's best friend. His name is Mario Mario Dominguez. So when he finished his associate's degree in New York with us, he ended up moving to Houston because his his um, older sister and Chona, you know, she, she is a nurse and she she works here in Houston. So I just remember throughout the years prior to us moving to Houston, we would come visit him, you know, because we're very close. He's really, his, his family is our family, you know, at the end of the yeah. day. So, you know, we were in his wedding party, we're the godparents to his oldest son, Josh. They're, you know, he and his wife, Anjanette, are the godparents to our oldest son, Anthony. So they're, they're practically family, right? And they would come visit mm-hmm. us in New York, you know, and, but, um, yeah, they were in our wedding party when we got married in 2000. But there was just a point in time when, and it happened to be 05, 06 period, where Jose and I started thinking about where do we lay our roots, you know, because we decided we're going to stay in the U.S. And, you know, there are a lot of opportunities, but the reality is we didn't have any support. And by mm-hmm. this point, Anthony was two years old. You know, I was in law school attending in the evenings, working full time. You know, it was, I think that the turning point for me was when I was asked by the daycare, like, who's going to pick up Anthony, you know, right. if you're not there, you know, and I'm just like, I'm, I'm at a loss because all my friends are from work and school and they have older kids. Mm-hmm. And, and the neighborhood we lived in was a, an older neighborhood, you know, like there weren't really kids around. And mm-hmm. so it got us thinking, you know, of, okay, when, when should we move? Because at two, Anthony, will not remember it, right? He, he's going to be very adaptable. But if we waited, then it might be sure. too late. So it literally was just a leap of faith. We looked at California because we do have distant relatives there. But, you know, Mario is such a close friend to us. And I think the one the one trigger for us, too, is it's so inexpensive. Like the cost of living here compared to Rhode Island. Yeah, it was, know. you know, we... we, we yeah, we looked at the house that they were building in Siena Plantation, where we ended up moving. That's where <laughs> I live now. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I think it was like 3,000 square feet and brand new and, you know, um, master plan community. And this was in a, a long time ago when, when Siena was just starting. And I think it was like 175,000 or something. Right. 
something like right. that. It just was like mind boggling, you know, because that would be a million dollars, you know. Right. Well, and, and then you also throw in the lack of state income tax. Exactly. Exactly. I think the one thing that we, we didn't even really expect that was such a great uh, bonus was the fact that Houston is such a thriving business community, right? Um, again, right. We, we came here for the for our friends and really realized just how how many opportunities there were and how warm the business community really has mm-hmm. been to me. You know, it's such an open and welcoming business community. I think a lot of us come from somewhere else and then found this very diverse. You know, I'm just so, so passionate about Houston. Yeah, it's amazing. It's, yeah, it's so an I'm a amazing city. So I've been here since 1987, since I graduated from the University of Texas in Austin uh, with an accounting degree. But um, you know, I say that people go. So many people I know they go through several stages with Houston. First, yeah. they hate it, then they tolerate it, and then they it just like seeps into you. You know, I say hate because <laughs> like you know, I moved here from Austin, you know, smaller, you know, more geographically pretty place. Uh, right. But you move here, and at first you just see the people, the traffic, the you know, the humidity, and uh, but but what you realize over time and uh, is just how how friendly and welcoming not just the business community the whole city is and yeah my i have a theory on this because i've talked to a lot of people and i've lived in places a lot smaller and the normal reputation is that small towns are friendlier than big cities but if i use houston as the big city example i found that to not be the case i found that smaller mm-hmm. towns are much more closed it's uh, right, you know, right. I, I joke that, you know, I've lived in places where you could live in a house for 20 years and the neighbors still call your house the old Johnson house, uh, you know, <laughs> exactly. where it, it exactly. takes a while to really break in. And, and back in the uh, in the late 80s, when I moved to Houston, there was a joke uh, that really summarized uh, how welcoming the Houston business community was. And the joke then was. Mm-hmm. Anybody with a cell phone and leased Mercedes could be a real estate developer in Houston. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, back when having a cell phone was, you know, a, a bigger, uh, a bigger deal. Uh, but yeah, I've always loved that. And that's why, and that kind of dovetails to my, my thing of, you know, not only are you an American success story, but you're a Houston success story because I can't imagine there's many cities that you could move to and not be from the community like I, friends i have that live in dallas tell me this would have been harder you know that dallas is a more closed community if you didn't grow sure. up in highland park sure. and you didn't go to smu that it's right but uh houston is just so mara mara meritocratic uh right. that it really when you think about it right you move here you have no business contacts no roots no mm-hmm. family mm-hmm. reputation and right. in 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 10 years, you not only get promoted several times, you're the leader of the largest, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, independent CPA firm. Uh, is it in Texas? Are you the largest in Texas now? Or is it we're the third largest. We're, we're, we're the third independent. largest independent in Houston, okay. but we're the largest in Houston. Yes. Yeah. 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 And you're, you're absolutely right, David. I mean, I pinch myself. Like, you know, I was talking to our new employees the other day and I was telling them about just the many, many opportunities that they can have in the firm and, you know, paving their own path. And, and I, I mean it, right? Because, because uh, I am that, I am that person that lived through it. And, and I think it, it's a testament to finding the right place and the right organization, mm-hmm. you know, that is very inclusive, that is really, to your point, very meritocratic, you know, what is it that you can deliver, right? And and so it, it's been such a, a wonderful ride for me. And, and to your point about um, certain communities being very insular, and this is not a knock, right? I think what happens is when you do have a smaller community, and I grew up in one, you know, the, my hometown in the Philippines is Baguio City, 300 and 50 people, not 350,000 people now, which is a lot more than when I was going up there. 
it does tend to be, be very tribal, very um, insular, you know, like, who do you know? And it's hard to kind of um, penetrate relationships. And I kind of mm-hmm. felt that way a little bit in Rhode Island. You know, Rhode Island is a very small state. So I moved from the smallest state to the largest state. You know, you can, mm-hmm. I think you can fit Rhode Island probably on Beltway 8. It's such a small state. Yeah. And it's beautiful. It's a beautiful, you know, um, state. And, and I, I, I built so many, many close friendships, you know, living there. But it is one of those, you know, where people don't rarely move, right? From uh, They grew up there. Their friends are right. there childhood friends, you know, um, and I think Houston just is a melting pot. You know, we, we all come from, not all, but, you know, um, a lot of people come yeah. from somewhere else. And and my inclination, right, is to embrace people that come from somewhere else right. too, because I've been there and I want to help. And yeah. I want to tell them just how amazing the city is, you know, and, and I think it almost becomes this pay it forward mentality. So, um, and it creates this, um, wonderful environment then for people to want to come to. And of course, for me and my husband, we grew up in the Philippines. So, you know, um, I'm, I'm not as used to the humidity as he is, but it was one of those things where we still liked, I still like warmer weather than dealing with the snow in Rhode Island. Sure, in New York. Sure. So, <laughs> I do miss yeah, the my, fall though. I miss yeah, the fall I, season, but yeah. <laughs> sure. I'm from Iowa originally, you know, for the first 13 years of my life. In my, I have a saying that says the worst Houston summer is still better than the best Northern winter is, oh, is exactly. my theory. Because at least exactly. this time of year in the evenings, you know, when the mm-hmm. sun's starting to set, it's it's pleasant. I mean, you can actually walk around and be outside. And during the day, you're in air conditioning. And so it's, it's uh, not I think so bad. Yeah, that's the one aspect people forget unless you actually have lived, you know, um, in the East Coast is that, you know, um, we didn't have central air conditioning. We had a right. window air conditioning mm-hmm. and they have heat waves there, too. So, you know, we I typically would I would hang out in the basement, you know, whenever we have those, you know, 100 degree days. So, right. you know, it's really just um, it's how you look at it. I feel like, you know, the heat is really just bothersome when you're going from their house to the car, car to your building. And then you can pick your day of, of, you know, like you said, eight o'clock at night, it tends to be pretty comfortable. So it's just a longer day too. I feel like you can do more because with the winter, it tends to be, for me anyway, you know, um, that it starts in November, right? It gets cold, dark, and then, It'll right. be a while before, before you see spring. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and again, yeah. So you get off work and it's dark in the winter, right? Uh, and right. So you just you're not really motivated to go do much, uh, you know, except go home. And yeah, and it's interesting. You 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 know the, the part you mentioned about New Hampshire or Rhode Island. My other observation is I think it's a function of of the growth rate. I think as much as anything else, because I've been to other large cities like uh, Milwaukee, Chicago, Philadelphia, that has those same elements of the small, smaller communities that you go to a place like Philadelphia. And I think a much larger percentage of the residents of Philadelphia were born in Philadelphia. And when you look at growth rates and, uh, you know, like I tell people from Houston, I said, like, if you go to a place like Philadelphia, the average age of a house there is probably 80 years old. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Right, Because the population hasn't grown much, so there's not much need to build new houses. And so you keep just, you know, keeping the old ones. And on the other hand, I tell folks not from, you know, from one of those uh, northern cities that hasn't had the growth. I said, I said the average age of a house in in Houston metro area is probably less than 20 years old. They're, <laughs> yes. like, they're like, how can that be? And I'm like, yeah, and I, yeah, we don't do a great job with our history. You know, if a house does get to be 50 years old, we tear it down and put up a new one. And because <laughs> our construction costs are so relatively low here and there's not a lot of regulation yeah. that it's much right. easier to uh, to, uh, you know, for a neighborhood to transition then I think right. some of other like northern cities where there's just a higher regulatory environment. So, uh, yeah, yeah, we were well, amazed. yeah, we were amazed because um, the, the value of land, I think, is what makes the difference. And, and I think a lot of sure. it is also 
Also, maybe the fact that Texas is a lot bigger, right? Um, and so there's more land compared to just, you know, if you pick any one of the major cities, sure. New York, Chicago, you know, even LA for that matter. But um, what, what I've found, though, is that the quality of life, at least for us, is just um, so much better when you're raising a family. Because uh, we decided to move to Santa Plantation because the main reason why we wanted to move here was because of Jose's best friend. And mm-hmm. we didn't look at any other neighborhood, right? Because we love Siena. It has everything. It's a master plan community, which is not common at all, you know, in the East Coast. You know, um, I, I can't think of one off the top of my head, you know, where you and have everywhere. a neighborhood. They're everywhere. In Here, it's very There's common. There's at least yes, 20 I can think of off the, just the top exactly. of my head. I've held this. You're, and just to give you an idea, people not from Houston, Santa Plantation is about 20 miles to the southwest of downtown, 25 miles, yes. something mm-hmm. like that. But 20, yeah, give or take, yeah. Yeah, and it's in what's called the Sugarland uh, general area. But there's probably a dozen master plan communities just out on the southwest side of Houston. Absolutely. And, and to have all the amenities within your, you know, just within your reach, you know, we have a golf course, three water parks, two gyms, you know, uh, all the right. elementary schools are pretty good schools. It, it just is such a different environment, you know, and I have a 17 year old and a 10 year old. And, and this, this, this is something I wanted to mention too, because speaking of serendipity, so my best friend since I was five ended up also coincidentally moving to Houston in 2008, like the same time that, I'm oh, wow. that when did I, actually, it was actually sooner <laughs> than that. Um, Cause we moved here in 06. They ended up actually moving a few months before we even did <laughs> just oh, as wow. a coincidence. Yes. Her name is Veronica. And she, you know, and so, so now she lives like two minutes from me also in Siena. So it's just wow. an amazing support group that we've created, you know, and sure. it supplemented that with additional families. But it's such a wonderful neighborhood that when she was looking for a house, because they were renting when they first moved here, when her husband took a position with Holly Burton, he actually, um, you know, I told her, you can't look at any other neighborhood. You got to look at Sienna. <laughs> and so she did. And, because and selfishly, you wanted her nearby, right? Absolutely, because her oldest <laughs> is the same age as Kenzo is the same age as my oldest, and and her her two she's got three boys, but her two boys, you know, my 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 little one Jacob is sort of in the middle of them because her second one is fourteen, and then her youngest one is eight. So it, it's just an amazing story, you know, that we all kind of got together, and she's family. She really is like my sister. So it's just been an amazing. But this neighborhood has been so good to us too. You know, we love it. We love this neighborhood. That is, that is awesome. Well, thank you for being so um, uh, so willing to to share your your personal story because I think it's just a great uh, reminder. Uh, you know, for those of us born in this country, like me, you kind of just take the country for granted. We we fail to recognize the specialness and the immense opportunity that the country offers. And so it's always great to hear that perspective. And I, I, I do want to, I do want to echo you on that and emphasize that, you know, I, I do feel like, you know, I'm a testament. We, we are, you know, my husband and I are both testament to just the American dream, you know, where if you work hard enough, and this is why I'm also very passionate about education because education is what led me to where I am today. You know, that opportunity mm-hmm. that was given to me by a very generous, you know, philanthropist that just wanted to help you know, just completely changed my trajectory. And it's really very humbling to think about kind of the path and where I am now, but it's, so I'm Mm -hmm. super, super committed to paying that forward. I'm very focused on, you know, I'm being involved in educational um, organizations and then also just for the firm as well, you know, being able to, to tell people about the CPA designation and just how special it is. You know, this profession Mm -hmm. to me is just, um, something very special that can open up so many doors for, for if we have any listeners out there that are thinking about what major they might want to take in college, sure. I can talk all day long about why you need to pursue, you know, a CPA. Well, and there's a great license. opportunity, right? Because a significant number of the current CPAs will be retiring, I believe in the next exactly. 10 years, isn't that right? So there's exactly. a great uh, opportunity. Well, and I remind, that, oh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say a reminder our associates, you know, that we're very blessed because even in this, in the midst of this 
unprecedented crisis, you know, we are an essential business. And I think CPAs are are really uh, able able to help, you know, our clients navigate through a lot of the new legislation and a lot of financial mm-hmm. issues that are coming up. So if you're looking for a purpose, I mean, there's no, to me, you know, it's, it's really one of those professions that will definitely, um, you can find your purpose in helping, mm-hmm. you know, other people. For sure. And just, you know, speaking of that, what, uh, uh, you know, I'm not up to date on these numbers like you are, but what are the general, you know, kind of range of starting salaries for people who, you know, go into public accounting uh, with an accounting degree? Sure. Um, we start off, um, give or take, uh, mid 50s for, you know, for staff That's accountants. Great. Yeah, which I think is a pretty good starting point. And then from there, you know, it, it can really, um, go up and depending on the level right um it actually Mm -hmm. can be very lucrative once you start looking at you know um pursuing perhaps a partnership you know in a firm because it's it's one thing about public accounting firms is that if if you end up going down that path right it's more of a more of a business that is based on what you bring in in terms of the time that you put it so it's a profit profit uh, type of a, a role because you're delivering a service and mm-hmm. there's a value to the service that you that you're putting out. Now, if you decide to go the industry route, there's also a, a good progression that you can have there. You know, starting out as a staff accountant, senior, picking a direction that you want to take, and then maybe playing the role of a CE, CFO, you know, controller. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think because you're in the numbers, you know, you, you you're always at the table. You know, you're you're always part right. of the decision maker. So the mm-hmm. the potential for compensation. Um, goes up, I think, as you, as you sure. hit the manager level, and then you start to kind of progress from there. Um, but mm-hmm. it's, from a job security perspective, I also talk about that quite a bit because it is an essential role. I think there's, there's a good job security, you know, that comes with it. Mm-hmm. No, I would, uh, I would agree. So, um, what I'd like to do now is just talk a bit about the characteristics of the companies who seem to really be the best fit for your firm. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, I, my sense is that like a fortune 100 company uh, is not the best fit uh, that, you know, that their audit, uh, you know, the market may prefer that one of the, you know, large international okay. firms do their audit. Uh, but on the other hand, at the size you're at now, I'm guessing that your focus is not on trying to crank out, you know, 10,000, you know, 1040s for a few hundred dollars each. So talk to me about who you really are best uh, set up to serve the the types of companies and uh, individuals. Sure. Yeah. So um, I had mentioned earlier that we have evolved the services of the firm, you know, to, to expand it so that we're we're actually hitting a lot of the needs of our client base. And our client base has also evolved over the years. But basically, I could probably characterize it as the middle market clients uh, is what we're targeting, you know, middle market businesses. And of course, middle market is a fairly large you know, range. Um, so it could be, you know, businesses with 20 million in revenues all the way to half a billion. Our sweet mm-hmm. spot, though, I would say, um, where we are now is 20 million to maybe about 100 million, if not over. Yep. But we're starting to kind of move up market as well, simply because we're, we're creating niche practices that also mm-hmm. can help larger organizations. You know, for instance, we're creating a fairly robust um consulting practice. We've already created it. It was initially started in banking with internal audit and yep, you know, I remember um, that. Uh, financial consulting. Yeah, David Phelps but really. David Phelps, uh, exactly. Exactly. So, um, but now we're actually able to serve even those that are in billion dollar private middle market companies because they may not hire us for the audit, but they may hire us for the consulting piece, you know, so whether Mm -hmm. it's preparing for the audit so that we're now helping them through technical accounting issues or internal controls or any kind of um, maybe process improvement that they may be looking at. So even though our target market for our audit, I I would characterize as 20 million to, to maybe 500 million. If I look at our tax group, 
that has also a different range because for, for our tax folks, we still do individuals for sure. Right. But those, right. those are mostly, they have complex issues, you know, they, it's not one where it's just a simple 1040, but rather, you know, they have a business, they're still a solo proprietor or, you know, um, mm-hmm. there's more complexity in their, in their taxes. So we've started to really build what we, we call niche areas so that we can create a team that is focused on a particular um, particular expertise, be a subject matter expert, whether that's in an industry or a service line. But the big thing that we're doing right now is the collaboration across the firm so that it's not a siloed approach in servicing our clients. So we're looking for okay. very, um, yeah, the, the, ideal, the ideal client for us is one where we're able to help them with the audit and then help them with the tax as well, you know, tax planning, and then also help the individual owners you know, um, to, to help navigate through a lot of the, you know, maybe it's exit planning and trying to sell their business or, you know, tax planning sure. and creating a, an estate plan or a gifting plan, you know. Um, so it's really, it's really more of a comprehensive, you know, comprehensive service. So because of that, I think our ideal client really falls in the entrepreneurial category, mm-hmm. you know, um, owners that are opening their businesses, they have a high growth company that they're excited about. They're looking for right. a partner, not just to do their compliance, but to really help them navigate through the challenges and connect them, you know, with with um, the right resources. So, you, you know mm-hmm. this about us, David, because you've been with our firm and that was the role that you played. We'd like to think of ourselves as truly that trusted advisor that connects, you know, our our um, mm-hmm. clients to the right resources, whether that's us or some somebody else that we can refer to them because it's sure. Yeah. Like a banker, like a bank, right. a law firm. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. So, so we're not, we're not, we're pretty industry agnostic, even though we're building these industry verticals, you know, um, we have manufacturing construction, you know, real estate. We even have a huge banking practice. We have about 50, more than that, um, 50 plus banks now that we work with. You know, so it's it's we've realized over the course of the evolution of the firm that there is now an opportunity to to really create these verticals. You know, that mm-hmm. that you're servicing the industry, but also expanding the services then. You know, that we offer within each of the core audit, tax, and consulting. Yeah, in fact, I think one of your first niches, uh, even before you joined the firm, was the benefit plan auditing. Yeah, uh, yes, and I think is, I assume sure. that's still probably a a, uh, a significant niche for you all. It is, and and you know, kudos to Marisa Morgan. Uh, you know, Marisa, she, you know, she started mm-hmm. that practice from the ground up. You know, and I, I think right now we're close to maybe 150. You know, that we do um, audits, and we're definitely in the top, you know, um, percentage of firms in the nation, you know, that do the number of EBP plans. And Marisa mm-hmm. has done a really, really good job of building the succession as well. So we have several senior managers and principals that are um, helping her build that practice. So we see that as a very sustainable and continuing uh, niche for us. Very excited. And what's nice is that we also have built up the team, even at the lower level, seniors, and staff that are very passionate about that area and would like to see themselves developing, you know, within mm-hmm. that, that niche. Yeah. No, that sounds, that sounds good. Um, what I've got really, well, boy, I can't believe the, how quickly the time has passed. Um, so there's a couple of last things I'd like to talk about before we wrap up. Um, and one is I would like to talk about some of the, you know, some of the misconceptions people have about the accounting industry or the public accounting industry. And then I'd also like if you could give me a real kind of real life example or two of companies or individuals that just come to mind, just an example of someone that you were able to, to help, you know, maybe somebody who had, uh, who was with a very small firm they'd outgrown or somebody who had been with a very large firm that they weren't getting the personal service. So if you could just touch on those two things, why don't we start with maybe some of the, the you know, biggest misconceptions people have about the uh, public accounting industry? 
Yeah, and, and I thank you for that opportunity. I, I didn't expect that to be a question, but I'm so glad that you bring it up. And I think it's very, very timely because what we're talking about that in the, in the profession, you know, I'm, I'm very active with the, with the profession itself, at, both at the local, actually at the local, state, and national level. So I think you might, you may know I served as the president of the Houston CPA Society a couple of years ago, and I'm currently right. on the executive board of the state society, and I'm actually the chair of the branding, you know, uh, branding and community relations committee, which is a new committee that we created for this year. And I also just um, served uh, three years on the governing council of the AICPA, and I'm rolling back in next year. So okay. one of our biggest hurdles, right, as, as I'd mentioned to you before, is that, uh, you know, uh, we, we, we believe in the profession. I believe in it wholeheartedly. I feel like there's so many opportunities. But there is this perception about accountants, I think, that is out there for, for whatever reason. Where And I had it, too, right? And that's why sure. I went management in the first place. <laughs> my husband went accounting, but I, I went management because in my mind, oh, gosh, accounting, it's boring. You know, right. Bean counter, counter, bean green counter, shade, I'm just, green eye like, shade. Every time, exactly. Every time we're portrayed in the movies, it's usually like this person that has like a half part or, you know, it's like, yeah. um, so I think essentially that you have an image issue is how I put it, you know, um, sure. and, and I think it's compounded by the fact that we also have busy seasons. You know, where, right. you know, um, some of the students may be thinking, gosh, you know, if I want work-life balance, I can't achieve, I cannot achieve that, right? And in the CPA realm and in the public accounting realm, because they work 80 hour, per, 80 hour weeks during busy season, you mm -hmm. know, from January through April. And, you know, there are firms, obviously, that, that, ha that have that, you know, where, where there is that need and, and maybe you do work a lot of hours. But, but I think it really is a misconception. You know, if you look at the opportunities that CPAs have, just in the diversity of the opportunities, you know, so I mentioned to you as a firm, we have our core services of audit, tax, and consulting. But if you're coming in as a practitioner, you know, as a staff, there's so many exposure that you can have in these different areas, because even within tax, you can be doing personal taxes, you can be doing corporate taxes, you could be doing partnerships, international tax, high net worth, state planning, right? So, so you can pick a, a path, you know, that is of interest to you within tax. And then if you look at audit in the same token, you know, you can pick an industry, you can say, you know, I want to, I want to learn how to audit oil and gas companies, real estate companies, construction and then even within that you get trained to be a consultant so you can become a controller you can become a you know a forensic accountant which is essentially what I ended up gravitating towards you know where, where you actually do investigations and I testify in court you know to calculate damages um, involving mm -hmm. commercial litigation and then you, you throw in technology you know um, technology is a big piece of what we do as CPA CPA for you know CPA firms where we we actually implement you know systems enterprise mm -hmm. systems like SAP and you know Oracle so so you have the technology piece and even as we deliver our services we use data analytics we we're into artificial intelligence now we talk about blockchain so there's such a broad opportunity right depending on your interest so we're not just here sitting calculating and preparing tax returns or it really is a very exciting and continuing to evolve profession, very centered mm -hmm. on helping clients, right? And and so whatever right. the client's needs are when it comes to financials, we're there and we can help them. And then it even goes beyond that operationally, you know, operational excellence, you know, um, visioning, creating a plan for the future, strategic planning, implementation, you know, that's our role, you know, as advisors. So mm -hmm. I really would love to change the image, you know, that we have out there of um, the, the stoic, you know, cannot converse because, right. because um, we're boring. I mean, at the end of the day, what is the number one, to me, right, the number one requirement to be successful in our profession is the ability to communicate. Because right. every day we're communicating with our clients, with our staff, with the community, you know, whether that's written, whether that's verbal. So, you know, if, if, if you are looking for, for, um, a, a really solid profession that you can, 
you can develop yourself and then become a leader too. I don't, I don't think there's, I think being a CPA is really one that you should be thinking about. And then I want to just touch on real quick the, the work-life balance issue. It's, it's yeah. real, right? I mean, but you know what? I, th- I look at any profession out there though, and it's the same, it's the same situation, right? A lawyer, uh, an engineer, you know, um, you name it. I mean, work-life balance is just a, a universal issue. It's not a CPA, it's not an accountant issue. Uh, right. What I tell people, though, about that is you've got to find the right organization that can provide you with the work-life balance. And I'm very fortunate because that was my number one requirement when I moved to Houston. So when I moved to Houston, I didn't know any firms in the area. I relied on my recruiter. and mm-hmm. But my number one requirement was work-life balance because I had a two-year-old that you know, right. my my oldest was two at the time, and I was going to be attend. I was going to transfer into University of Houston Law Center to pursue right. my my law degree in the evenings, right? So I needed right. to have an employer in your free time <laughs> with all that free time. <laughs> yeah. to go ahead and go to law but, but, school, right? Right, exactly. So I needed to find an employer that actually understood what I was looking for, that recognized that I can deliver, you know, but they have to give me the flexibility. And and you would you you would probably be surprised, or maybe not. To, to learn that certain firms just weren't open to that, right? They offered me a part-time position because they thought, right. well, how can you really do that, right? But Briggs and Selka said, yeah, go for it, right? Because that's, that's just better for us as a firm because, you know, once you graduate, you know, and that's what happened, you know, I started our litigation support practice and, and it, you know, mm-hmm. and, and so I think, I think to me, don't let that keep you from pursuing you know, um, the CPA license, because if anything, it gives you the credibility and the leverage yeah. to work with your employer in creating a um, a more balanced schedule. Because I don't think it's a woman's issue either. I mean, it may seem mm-hmm. that way, but I do know that um, millennials in particular, they're, you know, the, the dads want to get involved, right? It's not that boomers didn't or Gen Xers didn't, but when I started, there wasn't really that expectation, right? It's almost right. like we had to live within the structure that we found ourselves in, which is really interesting to me because I never questioned the hours when I started in public accounting until I had Anthony. And sure. then I said, I'm only going to work four days with my former employer in Rhode Island. They were like, sure, you know. Um, it's really finding, I think, the right employer too is so critical. But they share mm-hmm. your values. So if the value is fam- you know, family and finding a work-life balance, then find that employer that actually embraces that, you know. And then if, you, if you're if you one that is just really wants to put in the, the hours, work really hard and maybe at a stage in your life, find that employer as well, you know, that that, mm-hmm. fits that, that, um, that value. So it's really not a right or wrong, but I, I certainly want to just emphasize, and I know for Briggs, we're very, very committed to allowing our people to have flexibility. We're all working remote right now. All 320 plus people, we're all working remote, working from home because of the COVID crisis. But even before, we were letting people work from home some days of the week. So, you know, I think um, it's it's important to find the employer. So please consider. (laughs) That is is great. Truly, truly is a good, a very good, very good one. And, and then I think you were asking if we have some um, clients that maybe we've helped, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. So here's where you through. get to really. Yeah. So here's a great opportunity with uh, one or two examples, maybe just one because of time that can sure. illustrate and really allow you to, uh, you know, to, to accentuate some of the, the positives of the firm with a real world story. Uh, and it, you know, it could be a, you know, you know, probably a, a textbook one would you know maybe be some entrepreneurial company that had, sure. uh, you know. So anyway, but just you know, if if there's an example that comes to mind, would love to. Well, I've uh, got I've hear. got one. Yeah, so I've I've got one, and it's not a specific company per se, but I think it reflects our our um, core, you know, um, core okay. mission of really assisting our clients, right? And and because generally speaking, I can give you examples of situations where. We would, we would actually um, get a client that maybe outgrew their CPA and they're, they're now involved in, say, international tax issues because they're growing. Mm-hmm. And we would tend to bring them in and then realize, you know, that there are mistakes that were done or things that were not, 
you know, we're not even filed that we can, we, we can now help them remedy, you know, those are, those are fairly common, you know, in sure. terms of being able to assist them. But the one, one thing that actually comes to mind for me that is pretty recent is this um, payroll protection program, right? These stimulus packages that were put out mm-hmm. very quickly as, as a response to COVID. And um, I think for, for our firm, our focus is always how do we help our clients? You know, and so right. in a situation where they're they're struggling, right? What do I do? You know, all of a sudden I had revenues one month and then I have zero the next, right? And and they want to protect their employees because a lot of our clients are similar to our core. They're very people focused. And mm-hmm. so when the PPP program came out, you know, we really took the time within a few days to digest it, understand it and figure out a way to help our clients. And and the best thing that we did in hindsight, which, you know, in the moment, right, I just remember, I think, I think the legislation was finalized. President Trump signed it, I think, on a Friday. And we had a task force ready, you know, ready to kind of take it in, figure out a way for us to push this out to the clients, and then figure out a way to help them. So the Mm -hmm. following Monday, we actually mocked up a webinar to be able to um, reach our clients and give them the specifics, you know, of the of the program. And if, if you're if you've been staying on top of the PPP, it's it's so it's an ever changing, right, <laughs> very fluid right, right. Um, situation where you think one thing as defined, and then they come, you know, the SDA comes out with new definitions, and so so the need to actually be on top of it is so crucial. But um, long story short, we ended up putting out a webinar back to back within within two days where um, we had over a thousand people attend in that two day session. And then we added another one that Friday for nonprofits specifically, because nonprofits that's mm-hmm. really an area that we're we're also building out. And I was really, really proud of the team and the feedback that we got from the clients, you know, because again, it was happening so quickly and the opportunity to apply was there was such a short window, you know, to yep. think about the funds initially that ran out, you know, until it right. was replenished. So, you know, um, that to me was a huge thing. And I, I remember because we send out at the time you we were sending out daily communication to the firm, you know, the challenge that I, I asked the team was you got to step up, right? You, this is the time. This is the time to help clients answer questions, put them in the right direction in terms of what they need to, you know, to do in order to make this happen. And really our connections worked well for us too, because the banks were in a, in a tough position to respond. You know, I don't know if you recall mm-hmm. that certain banks were only offering it to their clients. So if you happen to be a client that doesn't have a relationship with a bank just yet, you're you right. could be out in the cold. Right. So we helped so many of them get connected with our community banks that really were not partial to, you know, just their clients, you know, and so being mm-hmm. able to connect them and really th- that's been a few months now and we're now in the phase of the forgiveness and we're, we're continuing to help. We're continuing to push out information every time there's an update. You know, we have we, that task force has evolved into a niche group that's actually helping clients with not just their application, but their forgiveness, you know, application as well. Um, I think it's a testament, you know, to, to our ability to to really um, pivot and, and address, you know, um, issues as they come. It's very client focused and being able to provide that resource to them beyond well, thank uh, compliance. You. Yeah, well, thank you for that uh, explanation and that turnaround time from uh, the legislation being signed Friday to having uh, a game plan by Monday is uh uh, yeah, not not every uh, service organization responded that quickly. And by the way, we ne- we've sure. never done a webinar in the history of the firm, so that was oh wow, <laughs> you had to get that so, figured out in a yeah, in a hurry. Yeah, we yeah we piloted it with the internal people first, and thankfully we implemented Zoom last year. And by the time Zoom took off as like the you know the media of choice, we were already. Right pretty well versed in it and had a good relationship with Zoom. So, you know, I think our license was capped at 500 for the attendance. And then we started getting registrations and there were, 
So we ended up expanding it to a thousand, but just, it, you know, again, it still amazes me kind of, I'm so proud of the team, you know, that, that made it happen. But I, that's the one that keep resonating with me when you ask me the question. Well, that is great. Well, thank you for sharing that. And I can't believe our hour is already up. This has been a real yeah. uh, treat for me, uh, Sheila. And again, I just, I just want to uh, reiterate uh, how, um, you know, how my heart is warmed by your American success story and your oh, Houston success you, story. Uh, that just is really, uh, really inspiring and a reminder to really every uh, native born American uh, about just what a tremendous opportunity this country provides. And uh, so, yeah, so thank you for, for demonstrating that, uh, that that opportunity exists. And also thank you for for taking such good care of uh, of our clients we we share some clients and uh, so thank you for the the good job you guys do we just i don't know if you know we just picked up a client uh, that a bank referred us that uh, you all do their uh, their their audit work and uh, i can talk offline oh, about great. it but uh yeah well, I, so uh, thank you thank you to you for i know you've always been a huge supporter of the firm as well so you know always appreciate you um keeping us in mind and the relationship you know um i'm hoping by the time we get to january next year we can have the open house because i know that's usually a time that we get to catch up but um, sure. I, I really just appreciate the opportunity to, to um, talk about the firm and myself too uh, well, it was my pleasure. Well, thank you again for your time and have a great week. You too. Thank you, David. Bye-bye. Right. Bye. There we have it. Another great episode. Thanks for listening in. If you want to continue the conversation, go to icdiscshow.com. That's ic-disc-show.com. And we have additional information on the podcast, archived episodes, as well as a button to be a guest. So if you'd like to be a guest, go select that and fill out the information. And we'd love to have you on the show. So that's it. We'll be back next time with another episode of the IC Disc Show.